0: Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales Podcast. My name is Colin Hunter, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Tracy Harrison. Tracy and I go back about 20 years where I was doing some work on delivery for her team, and we'll talk about that today, but also she was, uh, one of my team started coaching her, and and again, interesting background from a career where she's been working um, in the, uh, the spaces of EY, Accenture, but early partner career as a probation officer. So she's got a journey of different experiences of being from a mixed-race family, being in organizations, being in places where she's either felt that she could wear a cloak that fit, fitted and was light and bright and felt one that she could take off at the end of the day, but feel comfortable in. And she'll talk more about some of the other roles where she struggled with a cloak that she was wearing felt very heavy in there. I love the analogy that we're, we're going to go into today. And a lot of this is driven around her, her drive for inclusion and equity and um, the analogies it will take on in terms of the cloak to do that. But also the work that needs to be done is something as a business that we're working on with the 500 and looking forward to, to working with Tracy to support us on that. Tracy is part of our advisory board, sits on our advisory board, provides a real strong view, strong direction in how we we tackle a number of these things and I'm delighted that she can, she can talk it through with you today. Enjoy the conversation. Delighted to be joined today by a very good friend, client advisor now to us within Potential Squared, Tracy Harrison. Tracy, welcome. Thank you, Colin. It would be useful for me. I know quite a bit of your past. We were trying to work it out 20 years.
1: Yeah. Roughly. Making me feel quite old, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it started at a very young age. Obviously. You have more hair then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wondered if it would be useful to to share for the audience around your background, and and almost a, I keep saying this, but why people should listen today? What 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 are you going to offer? What's your background that you're bringing today?
1: Okay, let me start with visually who I am. I'm of mixed heritage. I have a Jamaican father and a white English mother. I was brought up in foster care in rural Oxfordshire so very much a feeling of otherness there so both being in foster care but also on entering school I was very sure I was one of the very few mixed heritage or black people within that school and usually for a care leaver I went to university I deliberately chose London because it's a more diverse place I had targeted the big cities and I'm the mother of two teens and the stepmother of a 23 year old what keeps me Awake, what keeps me driven is that I have a passion for inclusion, equality and fairness, and I really have a thing about integrity. So that's probably me, in summary. Mm,
0: that's great. And, and tell us a bit about your career then. Tell us about what you've done in your career. Let's let's go into that. And I want to I wanna dive into a couple of bits you've talked about already, but just a bit of the a career potted history would be useful.
1: Okay, so I've been thinking about my career a lot in the last year because I came out of being a partner and being a managing director in two big organizations, EY as a partner, Accenture as a managing director. And in total, I've spent about 26 years in those two organizations. Mm-hmm. So I've had to sort of reinvent myself in the last year, as to you know, I, I, I said I was retiring, I wasn't really. I was just trying to uh, <laughs> find a, a new path with, with more for me personal purpose. So I have sort of been reflecting a bit, and I think I'm a sort of I'm a woman who's been wearing a bit of a, a few cloaks over the last few years. Well, over mm. my career, really. One of the things I've reflected upon is that when I worked in my early years as a career, I was a probation officer. And a community worker and I also worked for British Rail, so very much public service, doing things around social justice, social mobility, etc. And uh, the sort of cloak I wore there was a very light cloak. I felt very comfortable there, enjoyed the work that I did, challenging but also feeling like I was really adding some value to individuals and, and family lives. Some years later I, I joined the corporate world and, and I sort of put on a new cloak. The professional woman who, although she did a degree in sociology and social policy, then worked in the community, was actually very capable of working in um, an exciting and thriving corporate environment such as Accenture. A couple of examples from there in terms of excitement would be, you know, working at the London Stock Exchange when they went from floor to electronic trading. That, nice. Yeah, honestly, you we worked incredible hours. I discovered both cappuccinos, because I didn't like coffee until we had to do lots of all-nighters, and wine and champagne to celebrate. Then another one would be the Philippines, where I worked there for just over three years, as the Philippines scaled up from ten to 30,000 employees. And then during that time, I would say I was wearing a sort of Joseph Amazing Technicolor dream coat. It was very exciting. Really enjoyed the, the work. And then at other times I've I've worn the cloak more heavily, particularly yeah. actually in recent years where I've been sitting around leadership tables and i am sometimes felt a dissonance between the cultural values and then the, the behaviours that yeah. actually have been displayed. So, you know, that saying of actions speak louder than words, I've, I've felt it a few times as I've sat around the most senior tables and thought, actually, I need to come out of these environments because that dissonance is making me wear what it feels like, a quite heavy cloak. So, and I've come out, as I say, I'm now doing work that much more aligns to my values, my purpose. And I feel like I'm wearing the lightest, brightest cloak at the moment, more easily worn and a joy to hang up at the end of the day.
0: Nice. I like the cloak analogy. We could go many different ways with the cloak analogy through there. (laughs) I want to dig into a couple of things because it's fascinating for me as, you know, a person of my age talking about British Rail, probation, <laughs> then you're talking about your, your own background, mixed heritage, foster care, mm. and then you're talking about equity you know, inclusion, all of those things. If you had to nail it down to one thing, that you're only allowed one thing that you're going to nail to the mast. I'm reading a book called Be More Pirates at the moment, which is a, Uh so all my, uh ah, yeah. Uh All all my analogies seem to be going that way. But, you know, when they talk about nailing your colors, literally, metaphorically, to the mast, which which is of those experiences, do you think, or which of the things within that are you most passionate about?
1: Inclusion. I can say that quite clearly because I, I think there's a lot of work to do around equality, diversity. But at the heart of it, if we were all more inclusive, we wouldn't need to use a number of the other terms that we're using at the moment in order to mm-hmm. say we need to focus on that. But actually, what we need to focus on is creating environment spaces, both in the corporate sector, in the public sector and in the not-for-profit as well, that mm-hmm. are more inclusive. And where people feel that they can, they're equally allowed access, they're equally allowed career progression, they're equally allowed to access the products, the services that they have been thought about when those have been designed. So yes, inclusion to me is a really important word. If, if mm. I'm only allowed one word, and you know I'm not good at just one word.
0: No, I know you're not good. And that's why I've asked you in the podcast, because I expect <laughs> more than one word, but that's great. Now <laughs> the, <laughs> the inclusion piece... So, If we went back to what's driven you, because you talked about a stepson, talked about two teens, you talked about the foster care upbringing and inclusion, and you talked about going into one part of your career, which could have been seen as British Rail was highly unionized, other pieces of probation service. And then you could almost say, and I'm going to put this in here, you could say almost you went to the other side, which might be, and went and, and experienced something that a lot of people of mixed race and background, in theory, don't get to experience. Talk me through the thought process of how you've you've carved your career and crafted your yeah. experience. Cool.
1: Yeah. So quite. I mean, in a way, I, I was going to end up working for the corporate sector anyway because at the time that I was at British Rail, my last role there was working at a I might add at a junior level mm. on interpreting the passengers' charter, which was all about privatisation of British Rail. So in fact, I had thought, well, if I'm going to be privatised anyway, let me just choose where. I I'd like to be privatized too. I I, I ended, and I was quite, I'll I'll be honest, I still believe the rails should remain nationalized. But anyway, that's another conversation. So I went to work with a logistics company. And actually my plan had been at that time to step into the corporate world I mean, when you're in the public sector, you're often looking into the corporate world and thinking it's more effective because you're told this, it's more effective, it's more efficient. You know, if we could bring some of those practices into the public sector, how much more value would we get from taxpayers' money? How much more impactful we could be? And so actually, I stepped into there quite deliberately anyway and thought that I would step in there lightly, do a little bit of research almost whilst doing a job find out how it's done properly, and step back into the public sector. But I have to say, I got distracted. I, <laughs> I joined Accenture, and you'll know, Colin, because this is where, you know, mm. we both worked you know, with and across uh, Accenture together. Mm. I hardly had time to stand still. The work yeah. was so exciting during that time that every time I paused for breath, something new was offered to me. And then I had my two children, And it felt like a safe place to be as a working mother with a good reputation already. So that sort of kept me there for a few more years. And and how have I found it? It's quite interesting. I think for a while, I was so absorbed by so many other things. I did join things like the Black Network, etc. But at that time tended to be just, I'd say, lower key than than some of the networks are now. But I, I knew that we had a problem about access. I knew that black and ethnic minority people were underrepresented. I also knew that disadvantaged people, people who came without the qualifications of a degree from a Russell Group university, that those people didn't have access to us. And although we had CSR programs... They seem to be about showing you what it would be like to work in a corporate rather than a programme that would invite you into the corporate. We can talk about it at some later stage, but you'll know that I've brought in a number of programmes to corporates to help them with their inclusion. I've fought quite a few battles actually around that just because it felt wrong to me. Mm. that we had such elitist views around what it meant to be eligible to work for mm. these organisations. So you could, you you know, and my my own kids in recent years have walked into a building and sort of said, didn't see very many people who came from uh, black and minority ethnic groups, but did notice that when the catering came into the room, there were quite a few people there and, and it just was embarrassing. I became... I became slightly um, embarrassed as though I was somehow colluding in keeping our organisations as they were, despite my efforts to try to bring a little bit more inclusion and diversity within them.
0: Yeah, and it's fascinating to me because you and I have similar views on this. Is the inclusion tends to be sometimes funneled down one avenue, whether it's Black Lives Matters, yeah. uh, you know, as a father of daughters, yeah. the gender piece, mm-hmm. and we've we've talked a number of times around this this concept that you know inclusion is so much wider and has so much more impact. Yeah, even to the point of you know, as a, as an individual who uh, suffers massively from imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. just this. Intellectual or non-intellectual has been my biggest battle. With my grandfather being a professor, my dad being a doctor, I never felt worthy. So, do you want to talk to me a bit about the wider definition you see of inclusion and, and how that's yeah. played out for you? Yeah.
1: Well, I think when I look at the groups that are most underrepresented, it basically is those people who ha- have been who, who come from social disadvantage, which has its has an impact on educational outcomes. And then also people from black and minority ethnic groups. So my passion is around those two groups just because they are so underrepresented. Mm. Now, I also have a passion around just overall inclusion. And I get frustrated when we have programs that, you know, let's differentiate and focus on this group and let's differentiate and focus on that group. And I do think that some of the programs that are put in place, I'll, I'll just name one, you know, a program for black and minority ethnic people within a corporate. So we somehow need to go to remedial classes because yes. we don't know how to behave within that organization. Might it not be a better idea to change the culture of the organization such that it is more open and embracing of everybody? Then you wouldn't have to send people on remedial courses. And that's how I view it. I've had some quite fearsome discussions about that. The the corporate thinks it's doing a really good job. We've got these special courses for you. And I just think you shouldn't need those special courses. You should be focused, instead of focusing on us and telling us how to behave, as though we're somehow not capable of reading some of those signals that you're giving us, why don't you focus on giving us some different signals about, you know, your policies, your procedures, but moreover, your practices actually are embracing of all and don't favour one particular demographic or even Mm. two particular demographics.
0: Yeah, for me, I echo that. I had a colleague who once described it. He was asked the question, so you know, uh, how can we, we learn to play the right music for the right people at the right time? And so, well, why don't you ask them what type of music mm-hmm. they want to play and what they're bringing in and to the yeah. audience? And, and therefore, there is a bit about, and, and I do believe this is, you know, this is Be More Pirate, I'm going to mention it again, but this concept that... The, I'll keep the to my pi- keep to your pirates. <laughs> cloaks and pirates, there you go. <laughs> and it's interesting because when you start to look, this book starts to look into the background of the pirates, the pirates were the first time to to have equal sex marriages Mm. on the the ships. They were female, male captains Mm -hmm. uh, of pirates. They had an equality system where, you know, the the plunder was shared out equally. They also had a lot of doing good for society and how they they operated. So there is a bit where in those days, the East India company was the one who was fighting the pirates and the big corporate versus the pirates. So there is something in here, hear about, you know, we are living in a world now where in theory, we're trying to innovate, we're trying to do different things. We've got more inclusion by technology, mm. but there's still barriers to getting people into decision-making seats.
1: It's quite odd for me because, you know, I I have worked at a, a very senior level. So I've been you know, a partner in EY, a, a managing director in, in Accenture. And what mystifies me is, and seems to mystify actually leadership, is that normally when you invest millions of pounds, and most of these large corporates will have invested millions of pounds into diversity programs and initiatives and targets and staff. is that there seems to be this idea that they, they don't understand how it is that we've arrived at where we've arrived. And of course, the death of George Floyd, or the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and also the impact of the pandemic, have made people think a little bit more over the past year. But what really perplexes me is how it can be that when corporations normally spend millions on something, firstly, the CEO owns it. Secondly, it is then talked about at every every board meeting or every leadership meeting, and it is reviewed for why it isn't being successful or what, what levers have been pulled to make it successful. And very rarely do you have a, let's carry on spending millions, but it doesn't matter uh, But we're concerned about the outcome, but we don't seem to be getting anywhere. And this is a thing that yeah. really perplexes me on inclusion, in that millions have been spent and are still being spent. And yet somehow very little has changed and moved. And I think it's partly, I will be bold here and say it is partly because the CEO has not owned this as a critical part of their business agenda. And it's interesting because I've started doing a little bit of work with a couple of corporations recently. It's interesting that when they have it in there as as part of their objective, when it's shared as a strategic objective around the leadership table, richer conversations are had. And people who may actually have a view and who feel marginalized within the corporation or feel that uh, the group that they belong to has been marginalized start having a better conversation and they're being Mm. consulted in a more open way and it has been quite interesting that HR has been responsible for a lot of the inclusion strategy and it's been pretty much a closed shot with HR going out finding out who might provide a service signing it off and on one occasion signed it off and then asked me if I'd like to participate in what they'd signed off and I thought well I think I might have had a view on how you might have wanted to do that. Who yeah. actually did you ask? And when I, then, when I did, then did the who did you ask and asked around a few other of the black senior people, aging people, senior people within the organization, they haven't actually um, included them in the conversation. They've just gone mm. off and gone, we know best. So there has been a little bit of either maternalism, paternalism, call it what you want, but the the approach has not been overly inclusive. So the very people who are setting up inclusion programs have not been inclusive, and it's quite well. It's not entertaining, but it, it you know if you could write a book on this and say seriously, but there's lots of books being written. I'm not suggesting you need to write any more books on it. It's yeah. quite clear what needs to change, and it is CEO absolutely owning the agenda. And Mm -hmm. setting some targets. And the reason I say to set targets is if you have targets set for anything else and you're falling short of them, then you start to look at also what needs to change underneath there in order to drive better success. So I'm not always achieve the target, but I think the target helps you to examine why the gap exists between what your aspiration is and what your impact is actually, uh, what you're
0: achieving. I love that. There's two things springing out to me, and, and this is having been the chair and running a diversity network mm-hmm. in my time and being the only white male heterosexual on that group with those three categories. Mm-hmm. And every time I raise my voice or put my point of view across, people looked at me as if to say, so why are you speaking? Yep. And it, not mm-hmm. for a, a nasty way, but almost as if I was part of the problem taking the be more wrong philosophy and how people can start to explore this what's your view around that? Because, you know, I, I hold my hand up, I hold, I've held biases in my life as it goes through, whether they're conscious or not. And I've made a mistake. And there was one particular one that is a very simple one is it was, I grew up with lads and lasses in Newcastle. So therefore I'd started talking to the boys and the girls in a room saying boys over here, girls over here. Yeah. And I got a real backlash from don't call me a girl at that time. And so I, I removed that word, but where do we learn to to understand what the new way is and i'm just interested in your views on that be more wrong philosophy
1: yeah so i don't purport to be you know a leading expert but i I, you know Mm. i i have my isms you know and i it's quite interesting you'll know yourself having teenagers Mm. you you know i got caught the other day by them i said something and it was just a throwaway comment and they absolutely went at me both of them this was our sunday dinner Mm. (laughs) um two of them went at me and I thought. Fair enough. And then the following Sunday, obviously she'd come to our Sunday dinners. Mm-hmm. The following Sunday, my son said something, and it was a bit iffy, and we both pulled him up. And what I said to my daughter, because I was slightly concerned that she might go off and you know tell all her friends what my son had said and what I had said or whatever, and I said, you know what, you have to have places that are safe where yeah. you can use language and where you can have a discussion about why that language or that perception or whatever it may be, why that perhaps needs to be challenged. Mm. You well. I know myself, if somebody jumps down my throat and starts mm. shouting at me or telling me I'm wrong or embarrassing me, I'll remember the embarrassment more than the learning.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so
1: I do think we've got to find safe spaces to have conversations. I think we need to be less condemnatory about people making mistakes i personally am off i don't go on twitter and things like that i fear yeah. for you know things i might react to for people being intolerant showing my own intolerance i just yeah. think we need to be a little bit more tolerant a little bit more but not intolerant of of lack of inclusion but intolerant of the fact that people need to learn a new way of working and a new language. And if you want, and and in terms of the be wrong for me, is that I believed that over my career, I kept on thinking, if I chip away here, if we chip away there, if we have a conversation here, if we have a conversation there, that actually by now we would be more inclusive Mm. And I have been shocked at how little progress we have been made. And one of my Mm. reasons for stepping out of the corporate world is that actually I think I can be more impactful. And when I say, you know, chucking rocks at people Mm. inside, it's not quite as bad as that. But it is about, you know, I think I can be better heard challenging people from the outside than I can Mm. by being frustrated and feeling as if I'm colluding on the inside. Now, it's taken me a long time to get there. Mm. But I do feel that we need CEO ownership, safe places, but we do need to accelerate and push ahead. Mm. So, and definitely I have been wrong. I believed it would just happen gradually because... I suppose because the demographic that I live in and the people that I spend time with, in work outside of work, etc., that they all seem reasonable people. They nobody yeah. gets up in the morning going, "I'm going to be racist, homophobic, sexist," except Well, but some of them might, but they certainly but yeah. haven't. That was me. <laughs> but you know, I don't think people. The majority of the population is not getting up every morning saying, "I'm going to be those things," and yet somehow is not embracing, welcoming, is intolerant of people who are other than themselves. And it's important, I think, for us to be a little bit kinder. And I think mm-hmm. kindness, actually, kindness is all the rage at the moment, isn't it? If yeah. we're kinder to one another, if we all, and you know, and I'm not saying that I I am good every day in that, that place mm-hmm. and I have to challenge myself, but, you know, if we're all a bit kinder, if we all took a little bit more time to talk to people and to understand them, then actually we probably end up being more inclusive.
0: Mm. It's an interesting one for me because when I was working with somebody the other day, or talking with somebody the other day who's given up trying to do his consulting business in large corporates because he doesn't believe he can change them. And he's yeah. decided that he's he only wants to focus on startups or smaller, fast-growing organizations where if he can get his people operating system in place, then he can shift the culture in a more agile way and start to build that up. And I, I do wonder whether, you know, rather than trying to to pull down the big corporate structures, there's something about, you know, throwing stones into the ponds to create ripples in small yeah. organizations you know, to, to do that.
1: I can see I can see why they're doing that, but then I look at sort of organisations that have really grown from nothing to huge corporates, such as Alphabet, Facebook, mm-hmm. all of those. They started at the time where I naively was thinking we're living in this lovely inclusive world, yeah. and yet they have exactly the same problems, or worse in some cases, than some of the the big corporates and. I don't think we're going to change to an economy that's going Mm. to be all small to medium enterprises in the next 20, 30 years. And these big corporates, like it or not, if you start your career in any of these organizations, you automatically end up with a CV advantage. You end up with a CV advantage because you've been welcomed into a brand name that is associated with excellence. You also end up with a lifetime, if you choose to continue in that sector, you end up with a lifetime advantage, a monetary advantage, because the salaries that you are paid when you start your first job and the training that you get enables you to leapfrog people all over the place in terms mm. of getting onto the housing ladder, you know, you name it. Mm. So, I don't think we can ignore the corporate. So I understand why your friend has done this because, mm. like him, I have, need, I have felt a need to step away from them as being within them, but I yeah. certainly am not going to ignore them. They have too much power and influence over, and they have also, because they've got large numbers of people. They have the capacity to do things that a smaller organisation can't do. Yeah. A couple of examples, you know, in Accenture where we brought in the no qualifications apprenticeship scheme. We brought yeah. 40 apprentices in. You can't do that in a small... You probably can't even at the moment until skills for life elements come in. You probably can't even bring in an apprentice at the moment. It's too complicated. But if you're a big corporate, you've got the machinery in place to manage these people, to ensure that you've got enough mentors, enough projects to bring them through. And then I think about things like, you know, the the delivery centre in Northern Ireland that we set up in Belfast, a delivery and innovation centre, where we took in under and unemployed people and for many of these people, this was their first job that gave them regular hours, a proper salary, and career opportunities. And that has grown substantially. Both of those programs have been going for many years. Both of them have been very successful, but they mm-hmm. both took in people who would be counted as other in terms of what those corporations traditionally took in. So, no, I'm I'm really sure that we need to chip. I think there's. Work to do in every space, and the charities and the not-for-profit sector are equally lacking in inclusion. And a lot of them have been examining their own policies recently and, and, and practices, and, and noticing that actually there was a sense of feeling good because you were working for a charity or not-for-profit. And then suddenly, as I say, with the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd's murder, people have gone, "Hang on a minute, maybe I do." Let's, let's have a look at it in our organisation, and they are equally lacking in diversity.
0: Mm. it is fascinating to look at. i was watching nomadland i don't know if you've seen it it's a harsh reality because it's a hard watch mm-hmm. but actually to understand i remember the apprenticeship program we we're working at together mm-hmm. to listen to the stories of people who have been disadvantaged and even just a, a recent bid that we were putting together for prison leavers to bring oh. some of our development work to them to realise that the impact of maybe mistakes people have made from the prisoner's side, yeah, mm-hmm. but also about the way the circumstances they were brought up and the choices yeah. that they had or didn't have, yeah, it's for me. I was I was passionate listening just of to course. a couple of the mentors for this prison leavers mm-hmm. um, session because these are people I would recruit. But it it was fascinating to me because I I do believe that, like in corporate world, there's a piece in here that people make mistakes. And and a lot of the times Mm. that mistake can ruin your career. People well, sometimes make mistakes earlier and it can ruin their lives. But a lot of these people don't have choices.
1: So. No, or, or, or they may have choices, but the choices they made are, are would be ill-advised and were their circumstances different, they would not have made that choice. Yeah. So you're hearing here from an ex-probation officer who says, yeah. well, you did have the choice about whether or not you said it. <laughs> 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 but I understand how you got into that position how do we ensure that you don't get into that position again? So I I do agree with you. And, you know, I I talk about with my own kids about, you know, the whole thing about the sort of white collar crime. You know, I can, I'm not suggesting I have or will, you know, I could steal some paper from the office in in London. Mm. Nobody's going to take any notice. Let's just say I went out with some paper and a, a stapler and let's say that the value of that was 20 quid. Well, if I went to a shop and did that to get, some food or whatever it mm. may be, equal value, 20 pounds, I'm actually shoplifting and I'm likely to be caught. Yeah. And so again, you know, the impact of doing a similar activity actually mm. has a completely, and we'll see it. And I'm hopeful that the courts are going to overturn some of the, some of the fines that were issued for co- during the COVID-19 lockdowns, because mm. um, I know it's quite a political statement to make. I live in a lovely house with lots of space, a garden, et cetera, et cetera. Even I wanted to escape from this space at times when my family yeah. was getting on top of me, but I wasn't living on the 17th floor in a flat with, you know, without my own space, et cetera, et cetera. And I was chatt- chatting to somebody the other day about that whole thing around one of the things that we've known for a long time, but which has particularly impacted people during this pandemic, has been that thing of space poverty. Mm. It's both impacted people in terms of their need to get out of the house or flat or whatever it may be, but mm. also it's impacted multi-generational families where they've been living sort of on top of one another and have caused the virus sort of go through families, et cetera. So, mm. yeah,
0: I could go on about that, but I won't. No, I, I, yeah, because the virtual world is an interesting one because you can take the the people are on the 17th floor, but you can also just take the work we do with Indian companies or Indian teams, and just thinking about the offices, their space to get out because they live in houses where there's 10 mm-hmm. or 11 people in those houses, so they mm-hmm. couldn't do the calls right. in there. But even then, you're talking about going to inclusion. You're talking about young. Parents with young families mm. being asked to have their children work at home, do all of that plus work. Mm. So it's been an interesting year for looking at empathy. Yeah, and mm. understanding uh, mm. around it, and and maybe there's an opportunity out of this in terms of the hybrid world to look at where people really live and the impact that it has on their work. And I know. hope
1: so. I hope we're going to look at lots of things. You know, I think mm. I hope we're going to have a different view about people who are unable to work and are on benefits because there have been many people who have been technically they have been taken from the public purse over the last year, and people who would not have been expecting to do that, who might historically have perhaps had views about people being on benefits. Well, right. actually quite a large swathe of our population this year, including sort of people who 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 are self-employed, et cetera, et cetera, have have had to avail of the public purse mm-hmm. and what it this year. And I, I hope that, that makes people a little bit more empathic towards others and seeing that, you know, sometimes your situation is such you, the cards are kind of stacked against you a little bit. And maybe mm-hmm just getting through every day is enough. And once you've gone past that part where you can get through every day and maybe you can get through every week, and maybe you can now start looking about how we can help you to skill up so that you can re-enter the workplace or enter it for the first time or whatever it may be. I'm just sort of hopeful that we, we start being a little bit more, a little bit less judgmental about people who have not perhaps been as successful as, whatever successful means. Successful mm. in the way that our society assesses success.
0: I no, agreed. It's, it's interesting because when we, I want to focus down two things I've got in my mind. One is mm. this conversation that you and I have had around, we're looking to target the 18 to 20 year olds mm-hmm. group because, you know, there's a, there's an opportunity to, to do good things in there to help not only those individuals who might not have equal chance equity in that space, but also organizations who are looking for new talents and, you know, uh, uh, new ways of working and fresh ideas. Yeah. And that 18 to 20 year old group is, is an interesting one to target. What's your views on, on where we are? Cause you do a lot of work in that sector as well. Yeah.
1: So I, I think we're going to have a bit of a lost population, aren't we? I mean, people will have dropped out of school this year. People will not have achieved what they expected to achieve. And I, it felt like we were sort of moving forward a little bit. You know, we've had quite a lot of changes in education in the last few years. But as I say, I have teams and their motivation definitely dwindled during the, the lockdowns. And you know, I've been sort of chivvying them along to, to keep going. They're, they're being tested to within an, an inch of their life, despite the fact that there aren't any GCSE or A levels this year. Yeah. So strangely, yeah. they seem to be getting more tests. So I think we'll find that that age group is going to feel as if socially they've missed out. As Mm -hmm. if academically they have missed out and therefore their life chances. And we're seeing that there's much more mental, many more issues with mental health or many more Mm -hmm. people with mental health issues from anorexia to depression, you know, all across the spectrum of mental conditions. So Mm. I think this population needs will need rebuilding. Mm -hmm. I think we will need to give them confidence. We will need to listen to them. Mm. And to hear their stories. You'll know I work for Southwark Care Leavers Commission and, Mm. you know, you hear some of the stories of people's lockdowns and they are incredibly different to my own and my children's own. And, you know, the importance of your, your family supporting you, of having access to funds, of many things that, you know, in my demographic we take slightly for granted. So I do think that this population... Is going to need a lot of support and just time spent with them. You know, mm. not not telling them to get to school, chiving them along, stay in the house, don't do this, do that. They've had mm-hmm. a lot of instruction. Yes. You know, today you're not allowed to do this. Tomorrow you're not allowed to do that. Go and have a test. Give me the results. Mm. Do this. You know, a test from COVID to to academic, you know. Yeah. They they really have had a rough time of it, all of them, but some mm. have had a much more difficult time than others and I think we need to think about that and how we can best help to rebuild those people in a way that doesn't necessarily require them to go out and get more GCSEs, A-levels, you know, all these formal qualifications that we somehow put so much store by, but actually build their resilience, rebuild their resilience, because some resilient people have gone into this pandemic and come out feeling... Quite de- destroyed by it. Yeah. So I think rebuilding resilience and confidence, and and just giving them some time to to think, who am I? What am I doing? Because it, it's all been a reaction to a pandemic for the last well eighteen months, really. I
0: don't agree. I'd, we could go talking about this all all <laughs> for the for the rest of the day, and I'd mm. love to. And maybe we need to book a second one to <laughs> to open up into different avenues. I wanted to come back to to close this today. You talked about <laughs> cloaks of Given up pirates. I'm going to leave that to the side. But let's <laughs> let's go back to the cloaks. Yep. I wanted to to think about the cloaks you've worn because there is something about when I uh, when I think about people going into work on a day. I don't. I have this expression. I don't do work life balance. I do life balance. So when people <laughs> yeah. put on a cloak to go into work, yeah, sometimes that cloak takes as much energy to put on and keep yep. on all day. Mm. So. Interested in your thoughts about the cloaks you've worn and the learning, if you had to crystallize for the the people listening, what are two or or three things that you've learned about the the wrong type of cloak or the wrong attitude or the wrong thing you've done? What would they be?
1: So I think my biggest learning would be, you can't, I think you and I had this conversation years ago, you can be exhausted by being in a a place and sensing the, the dissonance. And Mm. always reacting to it. I think this thing of sort of pick your battles, and you don't always have to, you don't always have to rail against everything going on. I wish that one learning would have been, you know, back to your one word, it would have Mm. been what particular thing do I want to focus on that I think will bring real value? and change in terms of inclusion. And I have instead mm-hmm. been, you know, trying to do it all over the place. I did it in the Philippines. I did it in you know, wherever mm-hmm. i have been. I've been trying to chip away because I come from that place of other. And so I always, I can always see the other. There's not engagement. You know, I walk into a room and I will see people and I will mm-hmm. spot who perhaps feels uncomfortable, I can sense that, and I will go and talk to them because I come from that place where, you know, I've always been, felt different. And so my learning would be to, to be a bit more focused on that. The times when I've probably struggled the most have been when I've said yes too many times to the multiple roles. I, I hope this doesn't sound too, too arrogant, but I'm actually quite good. <laughs> And <laughs> so, yeah. so what happens is I'll do something and I'll just get to that place. You know, when we were in the Philippines, I was mm-hmm. te- a large team and I was just got settled. And then they said, can you take on India and China? And I went, like, oh, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Got that settled and we thought, great, done that. And then they said, oh, can you just get us through an accreditation across the whole of the?" And after that, I was like, can you just... And every time I said, yes. And I was exhausted mm. by it, to be frank. And I don't think I gave my family the attention that they should have been given. Mm. And so, so that would be another thing. And then the final thing is always ask for help. So I do actually seek always to have, well, you all know I used when I was struggling a bit after kids mm. started school and I didn't know where I was going to go with my career, getting mm. a coach from uh, Potential Squared. And that changed mm-hmm. the whole way in which I then went forward simple question of where were you happiest last at work resulted in me going into the going and working in the philippines for the yeah. three years and having a coach over there george Song Keng po he was yeah. my mentor whilst over there and now i have julie henderson who, who helps mm. me by doing this pivot that i'm doing to be trustee and non-executive life so mm. at the times when i haven't had those i felt slightly lost. So at EY, I had Graham Swan. And when he left, I must say, I I hadn't realized until I've reflected now, that Mm. actually I I wobbled a bit after he left because there wasn't anybody else that I particularly wanted, I could place in that position of a mentor.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And you're making me think, because I think, you know, when Ian Ritchie, my old boss, left the Oxford group at the time, I felt lost. And I can go back to each of the bosses or the mentors or the coaches and how they had an impact, but you know, the, I have the awesome expression, you can't tickle yourself. So you need somebody there to, uh, you know, to, to do that for you. So it's fascinating to work into there. So just coming back to now, and you've talked about the three learnings, you've talked about the, the cloak, what, what are you doing now? And have you learned from that sprinkle, not focus or focus, not sprinkle?
1: Wow. So, yeah, so I have learned, but I would say that when I first came out of corporate life, it you know, I, I deliberately jumped out without a parachute, because I want to explore. I had some ideas about obviously what I wanted to do, but I wanted to start with a sort of blank sheet of paper, which was quite scary actually to suddenly do that when you've, particularly when you've had the the shelter of corporate life and and, and public sector life for so long. And so, what I'm doing now, I focus on a number of different areas. So I I'm on a number of boards mm-hmm. to do with education, mm-hmm. but education and training are two of the ones that I I have focused on, and then other ones include. Change of something, the arts. I'm mm-hmm. passionate about the arts because I do believe that they will be a game changer for people. I found them restorative. And those are basically the areas I've, I've, I've been working in and will continue to work in. I, I find those areas very satisfying. As you say, I'm, I work with you, your team in Potential Squared on your advisory board. And also, I work with Blueprint for All, mm-hmm. as their strategic advisor. Probably, you know, I'm, I'm early in, in my med career and I, I, I've got six roles, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of which are I absolutely, it's funny because when I first started, I thought, well, I could only probably do one or two of these, but actually, given yeah. how much time they, they take and the fact that I do enjoy work and particularly, mm-hmm. I've chosen things that I really enjoy yeah. and that I really want to make a difference with, it doesn't feel like I'm working most days now. It feels mm-hmm. like I'm doing the things that feed my soul
0: what a great way to end i mean it has been brilliant to talk to you tracy feeding the soul is a a key thing in in my life in terms of making sure that you're doing what you're passionate about and we are lucky um and it's about Mm -hmm. us trying to find a way of helping other people to to do that as well so thank you for taking the time lovely to talk to you
1: bye thank you
0: what a conversation Cloak's analogy and an ending with Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat uh, analogy in there and the the cloak and the hanging up at the end of the day for me uh, does it. And it's it's a lot of us are thinking about so how heavy is our cloak and how light and bright is our cloak and how well does it fit us and how well does it serve what drives us in terms of our passions and our values and our purpose. So it's a great to hear that story Uh, from Tracy. It's also great to hear the the journey that she went on from the training floors and working in there and the the long hours, the probation officer work, and then through to the work in the Philippines from going from 10,000 to 30,000 people and the scaling in there. And so it it is a fascinating conversation. And one of the reasons that she is on the board is to, to provide us with that diversity of thought and also her passion around inclusion and equity, which is one of my passions as well. So delighted to have that conversation today. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. Love to hear your feedback, and love to. I'm hopefully going to welcome you to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very shortly.